Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Delbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. And download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is leading play expert Joan Ullman. She is also the founding director of the U.S. Alliance for Childhood and former co-chair of the Walter Early Childhood Association of North America. Joan co-authored the report Crisis in the, the Kindergarten, Why Children Need to Play in School. She will be leading a workshop on the power of play at the Advancing Creative Thinking, Imagination to Innovation Conference in Bridgefield, Connecticut on April 28th. We are showcasing several conference presenters in Creativity and Play interviews in the next week and a half, including Hillary Austin and IBM's David Wan, plus our previous interviewees, Irish poet Anne O'Reilly, activist and artist Lily Yeh, and New York Times tech columnist David Pogue, who will all be part of the conference uh, later this month. Joan Allman, welcome to Creativity and Play. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you both. Thanks. Well, this report we mentioned in the opening about kindergarten and play is from 2009, and I'm wondering if you can bring us up to date on sort of what's the current status of play in schools from your perspective and the work that you do around the country and beyond. Yeah, I wish I could say things were getting better, but I'm afraid at the moment things are still getting worse as far as the elimination of play. Um, We did the report specifically about kindergarten because we knew that it was a lot worse in kindergarten than it was in preschool. And what we found in the report, for example, was that in the full-day kindergartens where the teachers filled out questionnaires for us, they were spending at least two to three hours a day teaching literacy and math and either giving tests or preparing children for tests. And there was less than 30 minutes a day for play. Um, What's happened since is that with the advent of the common core standards that begin in kindergarten and have about 92 separate standards in literacy and math for kindergartners, the preschool teachers are either panicking or feeling under great pressure to prepare children for kindergarten by bringing all of that um, what we call academic instruction down into the preschool and eliminating play very often from preschool programs. So the last couple conferences I've gone to, you know, different people have come up to me to say they are working in preschools where the four-year-olds are there for eight hours a day with no indoor playtime, which is just outrageous. And from our point of view, very ineffective as a way of, of teaching or communicating with children. This is not how they learn. So it's getting worse um, although more and more people are getting agitated about it and wanting to see change. And we've got some projects going that we hope will help foster that change. Um, But it's an uphill battle to get play back into early childhood, and it is not much better about recess. Many, many schools have eliminated or cut way back on recess. Even though, as one seven-year-old put it so beautifully, At recess, I remember everything I learned. And that's the power of play for young children. They 
integrate everything from life in their play and make it their own. Hi, Joan. Recently, I um, asked a question online for people to answer, and the question was, what is your play philosophy? I asked this question in conjunction with the research committee for the U.S. Play Coalition, and many people answered that question, and the answers were wonderful, but it begs the question, can you define play? What is your definition of play, or can we really define it? Right. Well, I've been very influenced by the play workers in England, and play workers are people who've been trained to understand many aspects of play for people of all ages. Um, and it's a profession there, a well-respected profession. You can get a bachelor's, master's, even a PhD in play work. And what they say about play is this. They say you can't really define it. It's like trying to define love. It's just too big. It refuses to fit into a definition, but you can describe it. And I've come to really appreciate the way they describe it, and it's this way, that play is a set of behaviors that are freely chosen, personally directed, and intrinsically motivated. So it can be any one of a million things as far as what you see outwardly, but underneath it, there's intrinsic motivation. So if I'm telling you what to play, it isn't really play. Um, it's adult-directed play. Um, and you get to choose what you want to do, and you get to direct what you want to do. So you're in charge of your own play. You come up with your own storyline in your own play. Of course, very often you're doing it with others, and that's a whole added dimension to play, is the social part of it. But you are an active player, not just with your body, but with your mind, with your feelings. You're engaged in it, and it's meaningful and powerful for you. It's transformative. Does that come close <laughs> to what you're yes. looking for? It's a hard yes. thing to talk and, about. And, well, and then, what what do you think are the differences and the similarities between children's play and adult play? Because ah, play is for children one. and adults. Well, I think that there are these commonalities, you know, it, like I was thinking about this this morning. One of the areas I like to play in is with food. I, I do believe in playing with food. So, you know, sometimes I'm just being innovative. I like to read cookbooks but not follow recipes. So I just innovate. And sometimes I just think about it from scratch and come up with recipes and try them out and then adapt them and adjust them over time till I kind of get it to where I like it. And then I usually get tired of it and don't prepare it anymore. But I love doing things from scratch. And to me, that's part of play, where you, of course, you're drawing on things you already know and have done, but you're doing more than just innovating. And you see this with children all the time, that they start out in a play scenario and it looks kind of familiar. Maybe you've seen them play this before or maybe it's based on something they've seen or read. And then in the next moment, it takes off. It's, it's like dreams that way. You know, our dreams often start out looking like reality, but they pretty soon get pretty strange and and new and fresh and creative. And I think the process is the same for adults and children. It's just the arenas in which we play tend to be different. And um, 
So, you know, adults may be playing in the kitchen with food. They may be playing in the workshop creating things. They may be sewing quilts and doing it in very creative ways. You know, and children may be just taking the raw materials of life and creating forts and houses and, you know, who knows what, capsules, rocket ships, and having their adventures with it. We don't tend to play the same way that children do, but we can absolutely engage in the same process that they engage in. Um, if we're playful, if we allow ourselves to be playful as adults. Sort of staying on this topic of adult play, do, does your work intersect into the workplace with adults in terms of helping them think about the role of play and what that looks like? And I, I would gather sort of by extension the connections into being creative at work and how we learn at work. I would love to enter that field more. And I recently met someone who's a business consultant who, you know, he, he was listening to me talk about play in childhood and just catching every nuance of what I was saying because he does the same kind of things with adults in terms of getting them to think about their intrinsic motivation, for instance. And we mm -hmm. talked about what fun it would be to actually do some things together in the business world, but that hasn't happened yet. So where it has happened is that we've brought play very strongly to various parks departments and um, children's museums. And especially in the work with parks departments, you could see people themselves lighting up around play. And in the case of one department where we did more in-depth work, when we went back a year later, you could see how playful the staff had gotten. And frankly, they all looked about 10 years younger than they had looked the year before. Um, you know, because play is, and creativity, it's part of that, you know, wellspring of life, part of the fountain of youth. When we're tapped into it, we feel young. We feel fresh. We feel as creative as children feel. Um, so I've been able to bring it into some workplaces, but they were places that were more um, akin to the play world, not the, mm -hmm. you know, hardcore business world, so to speak. Though so some businesses are pretty playful. So at the conference that you're coming to here in Connecticut next week, uh, you'll be mm -hmm. leading this workshop on the power of play on Saturday the 28th, which will be an audience of adults. What will you actually engage those, those folks in? You know, what I'd like to communicate to them and then give them some exercises um, where they could experience some of this has mm -hmm. to do with um, the work of a psychologist named Csikszentmihalyi who talks about flow. And to me, flow and creativity and play are all more or less the same. Um, I guess one could get more finely tuned in definitions and descriptions to differentiate them. But Adult, what adults often experience when they are really immersed deeply in something, you know, and you forget about time, you're in flow. And it's the same state of being, from what I can tell, as children when they are immersed in their play. Um, and there's some exercises one can do to kind of begin to sense, you know, what flow is all about. And so I want to do some exercises with people and also let them share some of their play memories or experiences with flow as an adult or play as an adult um, because the more conscious we become of these things, the more we realize that actually it goes on in our lives and can go on in our lives all through the lifespan. 
Um, but often we don't even realize we're doing it or we think we're not supposed to be doing it. I imagine the people coming to this conference think they should be doing it, but perhaps would like to do more of it, you know, have more creativity and play in their lives. Um, so I don't have it all mapped out yet, but that's the overall direction I hope to go in. There is uh, quite a bit of talk recently in, with play advocates around risk, the idea that um, there's so many playgrounds, schools, um, park and rec department, etc., mm-hmm. where there's a lot of risk prevention going on and children are not allowed to stretch their boundaries and find their own paths in those environments. And I wonder what you have to say about that risk prevention and the importance of taking risk and experiential mm-hmm. play. Yeah, I think risk is incredibly important in life. And the development of our ability to self-assess risk, you know, we all have it. We would never have survived as a species if we didn't know how to assess risk. Um, You don't get very far in life just through risk avoidance, although at times that's an appropriate response. Um, But mostly what you need to do is recognize risk, assess it, know what your own abilities are, how far you can go with this, you know, how far you can stretch outside your comfort zone with it, and so on. And that's what children do in free play all the time, but we've cut that off in in our hope of protecting children, of not letting them get harmed, we've put them in a really terrible situation where they don't know how to assess risk. So in general, with play, what you want to do is not avoid risk, but give children as much risk as they can handle. So, you know, you're not going to give a young child a chainsaw, but you're going to teach them how to use tools. And typically a child might bang their thumb once with a hammer and then they know. They don't do it again. Um, If you have a child who repeatedly is hurting himself or herself in risky situations, then, then that can be a problem. You need to kind of assess whether the situations are wrong or the child needs to build up a better sense of body and body limits. But children will typically hurt themselves a little bit while they're stretching the envelope, but not very much. And then they know how far they can go. And then as they grow, they go further. Um, And that's really what you want from children, because who knows what their lives are going to be like? Who knows what's going to happen to any of us tomorrow? We need to be fairly sharp. We need to know how to meet new situations and um, come through them well. And that's what we really should want for our children. Um, And the way to do that is to give them as much freedom in their play as they can handle and give them some genuine risk. So if I can give an example, when I was in Seattle last week, I visited um, the Parks Department on Mercer Island because two summers ago they opened an adventure playground. Now, there are several in California that are quite old, but this was the first new one that was created in the last in recent years. So I wanted to hear their experiences, and I'm doing a little case study about them for an article we're doing on risk. Um, and it's a hammer and nails playground, and so the children see how to use hammers and nails, and then they build forts. And um, I haven't visited theirs in the summer when it's open, but others I've visited. Children build one-story structures, two-story. In Switzerland, they were allowed to build three-story structures plus 
tree houses way up in the trees. And adventure playgrounds typically have a much better safety record than our kind of sanitized traditional playgrounds because there is genuine risk and children rise to risk. They activate their own risk assessment when there's risk around them and they learn to manage risk really well. So well, I believe you know, in risk. But what do you what do you think is behind these rigid boundaries and eliminating recess and free play? Well, in general, I think there's a lot of fear about free play and on the kinds of things that come out of us, come out of children, come out of adults, when you really give the mind freedom. Um, so I think in general there's a lot of fear, a lot more than we recognize about that. But specifically in terms of injury and risk, um, you know, people don't want children to be hurt. Well, I don't want children to be hurt either. But my experience in teaching children for 20 years was that those who were given a chance to do risky things were the safest. They had the least amount of injury. Um, I think there's fear of injury. I think there's fear of litigation. It's a very big thing in this country. And one of the experts on risk and play in England made a very interesting comment to me some years ago before healthcare was so big on the U.S. agenda. And he said, if the U.S. ever had universal health coverage like England has had, the fear of risk would go down. He said part of the fear is parents know how expensive it will be if their child is injured. And this is just a reality. I mean, I heard about one woman whose child broke a arm or a leg and cost $4,000, and she didn't have insurance, and she was poor, and she is scrambling to try to pay that off. So I think it's partly, you know, it comes down to um, just the fear of the huge expenses involved, and partly that we don't want to see children in any kind of difficulty or pain, which is a nice thing to want, but it's not a very realistic thing. Um, you know, growing up has some bumps to it, and children need to handle those bumps. You had mentioned uh, at the beginning, sort of talking about the state of creativity, that, that you guys are working on some projects to help change some of this and sort of picking up on what you were just describing again. Can you talk about some of what those projects look like? Yes, we're kind of working in three areas about play. The one is to continually get the word out about how important play is. So we've been happy to be able to work with the media on that, uh, to write articles for various publications ourselves, and just in any way possible, get the message out um, about the importance of play in children's lives. Um, and then we've had kind of two separate campaigns, interrelated but separate. And the one is getting play work and play out there in the parks departments, children's museums, summer camps, you know, wherever people are already working on recreational uh, opportunities for children, sort of out of school time, um, to help them see that they, they're the ones who can bring play back into children's lives because parents are so reluctant to just let the children go out to play. Even in really safe neighborhoods, they're reluctant. So when children are in the care of others, this is a prime time when they can play, you know, with some adult presence, but without adults feeling they, they should direct and supervise the children's play. Usually children just need some support, and then they're off and running with play. 
So we've done this whole out-of-school approach to play, and then trying to bring play back into kindergartens and preschools, um, and uh, what we call play-based learning, which is content that's that's presented by teachers in experiential, hands-on, playful ways, combined with time for children's own play. Because that combination of the two things is so potent as a way of children absorbing the world and making it their own, learning about the things that have been brought to them in the classroom, but everything else that's being brought to them in life, they digest through play. And to do that, we're doing, for example, on May 8th, an all-day seminar at the Department of Education in Washington on play-based learning with some excellent people on panels. And that will be archived after one can tune into it on the day of the event, May 8th, and it will be archived afterwards at a partner organization, the Gazelle Institute. Um, so that's one of the things we've been working on. And the other is that we're about to start a pilot project on Long Island for principals and um, early childhood coordinators on the importance of play-based learning in preschool especially. So those are just a couple of the things. And then we write reports and articles and lecture on this and just beat the drum, try to get people to see that um, that the basic premise that's going on right now in early education is ill-founded. It's not founded on research. And the premise is the earlier you can get children to read, the better off they will be. There's simply no evidence that if a child learns to read at five, they become a better reader, better scholar, better person by than a child who learns at six or seven. But the whole of American education has embraced the idea that children need to learn to read at five or even four in order to become really good readers by the end of third grade. And it's simply there is no evidence for that. And there's a lot of evidence that raises serious questions about that premise. So that's, you know, that's part of what we're, we're working very hard on, um, is to get that message across to people. And believe me, they don't want to hear it. <laughs> a lot of people do, of course, but not the policymakers yet. One has to do a lot more with the public. A lot of parents understand it. A lot of early childhood teachers understand it. University people understand it. Pediatricians understand it. Increasingly, psychologists and psychiatrists are getting it because they see so many young children under such stress. Um, but the, the policymakers and the educational administration doesn't quite get it yet. So we'll keep working on it. We won't give up. I think in the next, I would guess, three to five years, we will be able to make a real impact about this. But it, it will take a while. One of the ways that I get it, how important play is, is by listening to different people's play stories, the mm -hmm. stories of play in their life. And I wonder if in the last little bit here before we and our show today, if you could share a couple stories with us from your experience. Um, yes, various stories come through in my mind as you as you ask that. One of my favorite was in Chicago, um, the ice hockey coach um, in this parks department where we were working. He shared play memories from his childhood, deep snow in Chicago, and he and his siblings and friends would tunnel all back and forth across the front yard into the backyard, you know, with occasional holes where they could stick their heads up, you know, get some fresh mm -hmm. air. Um, but this wonderful tunneling 
and it and because another memory came from the head of parks or playgrounds rather in New York City, um, and she talked about what I come to realize as a kind of traditional play in New York as children playing in the storm sewers. So when it, there's no storm, those sewers are dry. And they would go for miles underground and periodically lift up a manhole cover and ask somebody where they were, you know, put the <laughs> cover back and keep going. Um, and so, you know, we, we tend to think of play as fort building and tree houses and so on, but these memories of going underground, which I didn't have at all in my childhood, I just found fascinating. So that's just a couple. But I would love to add one last note um, of something I just learned. I was at a big conference in Vancouver, and in a session on play and play research, one of the researchers said um, she was interviewing children about play, and they gave wonderful answers about what play meant to them. And she was doing this individually, so they didn't hear each other. But at the end of each interview, she said, what would you say if an adult told you, oh, play is not important, you shouldn't spend your time on play. And she said these perfectly calm children became so irate, most of them stood up and pounded their fists or their feet and said, I would tell those grown-ups they are wrong. Play is the most important thing. And I was so blown away that children feel this so strongly, can voice it so strongly, and are so frustrated by the fact that we adults don't get it. So we've encouraged her to film some of the children when they're speaking that way because I think adults need to see it. We need to see how frustrated and painful life has become for many children. You ask young people under 25 for their play memories, most of them don't have any. It's all organized activities sports and other things, they were not allowed to play freely. And when they hear play memories from others, often they start crying because they realized what they missed in their childhood. In the remaining uh, 90 seconds or so here, the big question is you could create the perfect school, sort of picking up on some of these ideas you were just talking about that are so important. What, what would the school look like? What would be in it? Number one, it would really recognize and honor children for the remarkable people they are as individuals and childhood as a remarkable state of human life. Um, and in doing so, it would trust children to bring their own creativity and their own curiosity into the school, that the teachers wouldn't feel threatened by that, but would want to support that. So there can be a project approach, there can be lots of arts-infused education, and there should be substance. Children love learning about the world. They want substance, but it can be done in ways that bring forth the child's own great interest in the world and their own creativity in experiencing it, and with support and respect from teachers and a lot of hands-on time and just real-life exploration. That's that's what I would be doing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that vision and for joining us in general today on Creativity and Play. It's been my pleasure. You've gotten me all fired up. Can't wait for the conference next week and uh, looking forward to seeing you there. Well, great. Looking forward to meeting you too. Joan Ullman is a play expert and founding director of the U.S. Alliance 
for Childhood. She'll be leading a workshop on the power of play at the Advancing Creative Thinking Conference in Ridgefield, Connecticut on April 28th. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dover. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you, Joan, so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. My pleasure.